Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 46, Swaraj. Now that we have established the nature of British rule in India, as well as the creeping problems it faced, let's look at a watershed moment in India's quest for nationhood, its participation in the UK's Great War. It was already a big ask for European soldiers to go fight and die in a war that started over an Austrian Archduke's assassination. Now consider that India was being asked to shoulder the burden of a belligerent as well. The Indian Army, composed of both British and native Indian troops, was deployed on all fronts, from northern France to the Ottoman provinces that comprise modern Iraq. The burden of expense from this army, considered separate from the main British one, was borne by the Raj government directly, making the war effort a public expense for India. This army comprised a million and a half soldiers, and just like in Europe, every effort was made to support it. Loans were taken out, revenue was diverted, controls in the economy were put in place. Really familiar stuff to what we covered in the UK episodes. The difference in this case, though, was that the controls were put in place with far less care for the civilian population. Recall last episode when I mentioned that the Indian transportation network was set up haphazardly and with an eye towards resource extraction. The sudden switch to prioritizing troop and supply movements threw everything into chaos, and disruption started playing havoc on the Indian economy. The cost of basic foodstuffs doubled as supplies became scarce, while imports nearly tripled as domestic production no longer met demand. Under an independent Indian government, the priority probably would have been maximizing exporting resources and commodities to feed the European war machines, which is what every other nation that was distant from the fighting was doing. India, though, had to contort itself on behalf of the UK. Some factory owners saw benefit in this, as the spike in import prices gave them an opening to expand their own production for domestic sale. That was a cold comfort for most of the population, though, as those industries could never be expanded to the extent needed to address their demand. By and large, the people endured deprivation and scarcity during the war years, which did not endear them any closer to their rulers. For the Indian Muslim community, there was the added wrinkle of the Ottoman Empire joining the war against the British. The Turkish sultan held the title of caliph, which meant he carried a kind of moral authority over the whole of the Sunni Muslim world. Not that this meant he could just stroll into any Muslim land and start bossing people around, but he did hold a special significance as a spiritual leader for the Indian Muslims. To actively fight against him on behalf of Christian overlords did not sit well with them. Plots were hatched for revolts, small arms and explosives were smuggled in by the Germans, and there were numerous isolated incidents. Railways were sabotaged, and officials were attacked, that sort of thing. The British were quick to respond to the disturbances, and by mid-1915, they were effectively interdicting attempts at getting weapons into the country. And while the moment for armed opposition had passed by then, the political factions weren't inclined to simply fall in line with the British. The war precipitated a reconciliation between the Congress and the Muslim League in 1916. In both October and December of that year, the two groups formally requested the Raj government agree to a representative government, and accepting India as a formal dominion alongside the others. They also made an agreement between each other, called the Lucknow Pact, creating a plan to divide the share of local governments between Hindus and Muslims in each province. The arrangements were not based on democratic notions, nor did they divvy up shares of government based on the actual ratios between Muslims and Hindus in those provinces. Instead, it was based purely on the interests of the Congress and League, neither of which were officially representative of the peoples they claimed to represent, but all the same, they were the most established factions of 
each community, and we're now officially working together. Meanwhile, at the local levels, home rule leagues were being organized. These groups were hindered by their provincial scope that kept them isolated from each other, but they were able to achieve significant membership numbers, with many reaching into the tens of thousands. The British realized they might have a problem on their hands and began taking steps to clamp down on dissent. They certainly didn't acknowledge the request for Dominion status and moved instead to do the old divide-and-conquer strategy. They reached out to more moderate public figures and tried to draw them back on board with nebulous promises of increased influence, and they also churned out propaganda to swing public opinion among the masses, and most controversially, started using the wartime powers that the government had put in place back in 1915 to begin investigating subversive activity. Which, if you're guessing that's going to be used against political agitators, good guess. There were voices among the British that were willing to hear the Indians out, though. The Secretary of State in British India, Edwin Montague, came to the conclusion that only increased engagement with the native Indians would secure a continued British presence in the country. In 1917, he pushed a series of recommendations to the Viceroy of India at the time, Lord Chelmsford, who agreed and signed off on a joint report with Montague in 1918. The Montague-Chemsford reforms, or the Montford reforms in the shorthand, would become the blueprint of the Government of India Act that was passed by the UK Parliament in December 1919. The Act was designed to change governance in India, away from the top-down administration that had predominated, and start integrating Indians at the local level into the decision-making process. The system devised was referred to as a diarchy, which is to say that a number of powers at the provincial level, namely education, health, and agriculture, would be managed by councils that answered to elected assemblies. Other powers, like law enforcement and financing, would be kept by the British governors and not subject to those oversights. It also made the legislature at the national level more formal. The Imperial Legislative Council was expanded and split into a bicameral assembly with an upper and lower house. It, too, was subject to the diarchy system, wherein the Viceroy's government still had privileged areas of government the council could not touch. The reforms were hailed by the British as a generous and forward-thinking package of legislation. For the Indians, though, it left a great deal to be desired and caused considerable friction between its supporters and opponents. Indians definitely were getting a more involved hand in government. The problem, though, was that the areas they were getting were thankless tasks with intractable problems. We've already touched on how the war had left the country in terrible shape, and despite the eventual victory, massive work was needed to turn things around. The big three areas of local responsibility, education, health, and agriculture, simply faced too many issues for provincial governments to address by themselves. They basically got turned into patsies that were set to take the fall for institutional failures, and who had to work with resources limited enough they had to fall back upon the Raj's national government for support. At the national level, the story wasn't much better. The Viceroy maintained a veto on legislation the council presented, and could shut down any debate. Meanwhile, if a bill could pass in one of the houses, but not the other, the Viceroy could simply declare it had passed which meant the English could still overrule native decisions. The expansion of both provincial legislatures and the Legislative Council also allowed for more native collaborators to be recruited. More men in government meant that they became more and more part of the system, their positions predicated on continuing 
the existing government. In effect, many of the problems the country faced caused by the British were now being placed in Indian hands, while much of the real power was maintained by the unelected British. One last major issue was that it largely did not affect the princely states, which still composed around half the country. These lands were still managed by their home princes, who were firmly opposed to Western reforms as it threatened their own powers. The act did allow for a council to be set up among them, but it didn't really carry any power and was little used. The reforms split the leading figures of India, with the moderates wanting to take the perceived win and make full use of the increased political privileges granted. After all, these reforms would make India the most self-governing of all the non-white colonies, and it wasn't as if there was a clear vision of where India should be going. Certainly, they wanted some kind of self-rule and had requested being transferred to dominion status, but how far to actually push and how fast was a matter of no small debate. As I've talked about before, the big issue was the fragmented nature of Indian politics. The Congress and the League were both factionalized groups that could hardly be considered unified even within their own ranks. And even then, their membership was overwhelmingly educated and well-off, hardly representative of their own country. Each leading figure could only claim to command a power base in their home turf, and rarely had much of a national profile past that. But now, finally, at this time, there was suddenly a figure that transcended national divisions. And it was at this time that Gandhi emerges to prominence. And while Gandhi's personal story is certainly important for both India and the world, uh, this still is ostensibly a podcast about the context and causes of the Second World War, of which he was admittedly not one of its leading figures. But since he is the root cause of so many British anxieties and influenced the way they approached their imperial cornerstone, he does deserve some special attention. So I'm going to provide a bit of a brief introductory sketch here. Like many of the largest historical figures I've been covering, he would seem an unlikely candidate for the legend he would become. He was born in 1869 in western India. His father was a minister of a minor prince in the area. He was a shy fellow and not terribly social as a result, but nevertheless set out to study law in London in 1888 after the death of his father. While he had enough money to live there and get through his studies, it was a modest and quiet existence for him. The fact that he was very much a shy stranger in a strange land probably didn't help. When he returned home, he attempted to set up a law practice in the city of Bombay, but that was a disaster. His social anxiety kicked in during questioning, and he couldn't get a word out. His law career a non-starter at home, he turned instead to an opening abroad. Last episode, I mentioned that Indian businessmen and workers had migrated to all areas of the larger empire in search of opportunities. And one of those places was South Africa, where an Indian company was in need of legal assistance and wanted someone from back home to represent them. He went there on a one-year contract, but would wind up staying there until 1915. It was in South Africa that the historical figure we recognize as Gandhi emerged. South Africa, as we covered in episode 44, was a really hostile residence for anyone non-white. Gandhi himself felt this discrimination immediately, being beaten and even ejected from a train after refusing to accept humiliating travel accommodations. Things weren't any better for his countrymen that he met in Africa either and their community suffered under constant persecution. This treatment awakened something in Gandhi, something that overcame his non-confrontational character. Before, he had been a loyal subject and thought of himself as such. But now he realized that his people and himself were not enjoying the same level of rights and privileges 
that he expected as members of a greater community. Which is really telling that South African racism is so bad that it contributed in no small part to India eventually breaking away from the empire. He set out on campaigns to organize the Indian community in South Africa, with the objective of attaining political rights within that colony. This brings up the next most important consequence of Gandhi being in South Africa at that moment. Back home, most Indians knew other Indians of their community, and that was about it. Certainly, the big shots traveled and met their counterparts from other regions, but for the majority of the country, there wasn't a lot of exposure to cultures outside their home regions. This would have been true as well for Gandhi had he elected to stay home. But in South Africa, there was a melting pot of Indian expats from all over the subcontinent. It was here that Gandhi was exposed to Indians of every religion and many of its ethnic groups, and even got to know others from outside his caste. He learned the grievances and desires of people he otherwise never would have encountered, and whom he would have to convince of his leadership down the road. With his eyes opened, Gandhi began workshopping the philosophy and tactics he would take back home with him. He fought for Indian rights in South Africa where he could, but where the authorities were unwilling to bend to his appeals, he would launch campaigns of nonviolent resistance. It would be wrong to simply look at this tactic, which would itself become famous in Western culture, as a passive one. Gandhi himself dismissed that label. Instead, these campaigns were based on what came to be known as Satyagraha, or the Truth Force. To clarify the difference, Gandhi came to believe that not only should India and Indians attain autonomy, but they should do so in a morally pure manner. To simply overturn the British rule and replace the oppressive structure with one fully staffed by Indians would not really solve anything. The answer was Satyagraha, which called for unity of Indians of all religions, ethnicities, and castes. Its vision included a simple, communal lifestyle that eschewed the materialistic lifestyle of the West that Gandhi had become so disenchanted with. It was a movement based on love and understanding, and where it met resistance, like, say, the British authorities, violence was forbidden as both a sign of compassion and to protect the integrity of the practitioner. This was not simply a style of protest. This was a spiritual belief and a lifestyle to be lived, something that was going to catch the authorities by surprise. When Gandhi returned home in 1915, he brought with him his belief in Swaraj, which, strictly speaking, meant self-rule. However, to Gandhi, this also incorporated his Satyagraha teachings and sought a much more open society, with less emphasis placed on Western styles of governance. The teachings would prove popular with much of the Indian populace, but for leading figures, like, say, in the Congress, they would be a matter of no small concern, as it directly challenged their station as well. For the first few years, Gandhi stuck to his homeland of Gujarat, helping organize strikes among local farmers and cotton mill workers. This was small beans in the grand scheme of things, and there were no decisive successes, but it did give him a national profile, which was good, because in the waiting days of World War I, the British were going to stir up a hornet's nest in India. Earlier, I mentioned one of the British responses to increased agitation in India was to use their wartime powers to begin clamping down on dissent. Well, those wartime powers were set to expire now that the conflict was winding down. A committee headed by a man named Sidney Rowlett recommended that those powers be extended into peacetime, and in March 1919, the informally named Rowlett Act cleared the as-yet unreformed Imperial Legislative Council against the bitter opposition of the Indian members of that body. While the government tried to play the act down and claimed it only pertained to 
overly dissident politicians, the vast majority of the population was fearful of how open-ended the powers of the police would be when it came to detaining people. Gandhi took this opening to begin implementing Satyagraha on a national scale. He mobilized his own adherents, the Home Rule Leagues of the provinces, and the Islamist organizations that he had cultivated contacts with. That last part is important, because in early 1919, the Ottoman Empire had not yet been formally dissolved, and there was still much concern about the fate of the Caliph in Istanbul, and was, as such, still a rallying symbol for Muslims. This spiritual protest started spreading across the nation, and while it was focused mainly in the northern regions and in the urban areas further south, it became the largest mass event the British had faced in India for generations. Moreover, this was a joint Hindu-Muslim affair, which did not go unnoticed by officials and caused grave concern. The crowds followed Gandhi's directions and were peaceful affairs. Boycotts on British goods were started and workers refused to contribute their labor. Events started to go off the rails, though, as in the town of Amritsar, authorities fired into a crowd on April 10, 1919, which provoked attacks on banks, post offices, and the town hall. This was followed up the next day with the local commander, General Reginald Dyer, declaring martial law and prohibiting gatherings. On the 13th, a crowd of villagers entered the town for a previously scheduled festival, and who had definitely not gotten the martial law memo. Dyer moved in his troops and had them open fire on the unarmed crowd, officially killing 379 and injuring up towards 1,200. Accounts from on the ground claim casualties were far higher. The Amritsar Massacre, as it came to be known, was one of those exercises in casual brutality that was horrifyingly ill-conceived anyway you try to look at it. But Dyer was not immediately relieved, and instead continued a campaign of oppression in the area, which included not just random arrests and beatings, but also humiliations like making inhabitants crawl down on a street as penance for insulting an English lady. Dyer later expressed no regrets and claimed the massacre would have been greater if not for a lack of ammunition and the streets being too narrow to deploy an armored car. He was not found guilty of any wrongdoing and was allowed to normally resign from the army. He was gifted a huge pile of cash from supporters back home, and he retired to Britain and a quiet, well-off existence for the rest of his life. Elsewhere in India, Gandhi was arrested on April 9th. This provoked the crowds to begin turning violent, and then the news of the massacre broke. The resulting violence was mostly against property or official buildings, but the response from the Raj government was anything but. Every armament, including aircraft and machine guns, were employed to suppress the crowds. The death toll rose into the thousands. The leading Indian politicians, who had largely been on the sidelines due to this protest, mainly consisting of the masses they were not connected to, freaked out. Gandhi called for peace to be restored, and the rioting ended by shutting down the protests, which put off more than a few of his supporters now that so much blood had been spilled. However, this early Satyagraha was just an opening move to a more ambitious vision. Gandhi may have called off the protests for the time being, but the experience of March and April 1919 changed his perceptions as to what could and had to be done. The movement had taken off far more extensively than he or anyone else had expected. It also demonstrated the lengths the British would go to in order to keep control in India, and how a much larger and more disciplined movement would be needed to overcome that. The British also had shown how contemptuous of Indian lives they were, which demonstrated to Gandhi that the path to Swaraj was not something to be built towards gradually, but rather something that needed to be grasped at with all possible speed. 
There was no place for a transition to power. The Raj simply had to go as soon as possible. An issue facing him, though, was that the Satyagraha philosophy had not been observed by large segments of the protest movement, and Gandhi, being a relatively new figure on the scene, meant that he could not exert personal authority over every protest. This would need to be resolved before he could launch the national revolution he envisioned. The British responding with force could crush individual riots, but a well-disciplined and national movement could peacefully shut down the entire nation. A complete disruption of India, and demonstrating that rule there was more trouble than it was worth, was the most effective way forward in Gandhi's eyes. To that end, he spent the rest of 1919 marshalling national support around himself, which is a far cry from the days when he couldn't even get a sentence out when he tried being a lawyer. It didn't go too badly, though, again, considering how recent he was on the national scene. The Congress was lacking at that moment strong leadership, and because of the legislative reforms expanding the importance of elections, the group had to be more sensitive to mass public opinion. Gandhi set about reorganizing the Congress into a more formal political party capable of mass mobilization. He created membership standards and reorganized the hierarchy of the party for better communication across the country. And as for the Muslim community, they were raring for a fight with the Brits. The peace deals had concluded and it became obvious that the Caliph was not going to have influence over the holy sites of the Islamic faith and that Europeans were going to dominate most of the Middle East. This feeling of pan-Muslim struggle was called the Caliphate Movement, and Gandhi was in full support of their grievances. That was the time of closest Muslim-Hindu unity, as the two groups were set to follow Gandhi into an even larger demonstration of non-cooperation. And while that non-cooperation campaign would only officially launch in August 1920, India would be racked by labor disturbances all the way up to that moment. In the major cities, workers would launch strikes numbering the tens of thousands over their poor conditions. Living conditions hadn't improved terribly much since the war had ended, and the people were getting increasingly desperate. By the time non-cooperation got underway, the British were faced with an even bigger movement than the one they had faced in early 1919. Taxes couldn't be collected, businesses were boycotted, and authorities were ignored all across India. Added to this, the first elections post-reform were held in November 1920. The actual voting process was not impeded, but in several areas the vote fell far short of where it should have been, and many natural candidates for positions did not stand, both a consequence of a boycott of participating. The government was at a loss of what to do, as they were dealing with an inherently peaceful movement that was not only cutting into their bottom line, but was steadily gaining support among the populace that saw this non-violent approach as a viable way to express their dissatisfaction with their rulers. It was this spread that eventually brought down the campaign, although not before seriously threatening the Raj. The example of Gandhi demonstrated that the British could be resisted, and numerous local groups got in on the action all across India. Problem was, though, they weren't coordinating with Gandhi either, nor did most of them subscribe to the disciplined Satyagraha philosophy. They were out to settle local grudges, and as non-cooperation dragged on through 1921 and into 1922, many sought to take their shot while the nation was in chaos. This led the government to start applying mass arrests and bans on public meetings in an effort to curb the movement's leadership. This in turn created even more unrest, which culminated in an incident at a town called Charichara, where local peasants burned 22 policemen alive. Gandhi, feeling the principles of Satyagraha defeated, called off the entire non-cooperation campaign. The decision came at a critical point, as if it had gone on any longer, events probably would have gotten away from him 
and the movement would have transitioned into a violent revolt. In any case, many of Gandhi's supporters, especially among the Muslims, felt put out, to say the least, by the sudden end of the campaign. In fact, the British might have done Gandhi a favor when they arrested him on March 10, 1922. The campaign had further cemented Gandhi as the preeminent national figure, and certainly demonstrated to the British that he would have to be treated as such in the future. The problem, though, is that now Gandhi would have to maintain that position, all the while fending off challenges from those skeptical of his peaceful philosophy. His sudden decision to call off the campaign had come kind of out of the blue and alienated many who felt they were on the verge of something big. It also reminded them of the March and April 1919 campaign that Gandhi had also called off when the situation had escalated. Next week, we'll get into the aftermath of this latest round of non-cooperation and see how events progress now that Gandhi was temporarily behind bars. New leaders would rise in India, and opposition to the British would only become more entrenched. Join me for that next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.